This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 9th, 2015. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Vanessa Ezenois on treating buffalo for one infection to stop another. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the role of a top predator in the health of plants. Often when we think of the different roles plants and animals play in an ecosystem, it brings to mind like a pyramid structure. Apex predators eat certain prey. Those prey have prey that they prey on, and those prey prey on herbivores. And the herbivores munch on the next level down. But the connections run up and down the pyramid, not just between each level. And recently, researchers have found a pretty good example of this complexity. Who are the players that we're going to talk about, Dave? Our players are black bears, ants, and a tiny sap-sucking insect called a treehopper, and a common plant called the rabbit brush. And what is the relationship between all these in terms of prey, predator, and other kinds of behavior? Well, before the bears came along, basically what was happening is that the treehoppers sucked sap from the plants. They secreted a sugary liquid that the ants ate, and in return, the ants offered protection of the treehoppers. So there's sort of this symbiotic relationship happening between the plants, the ants, and the treehoppers. And then the bears come along and started up basically what's kind of a natural experiment. 
Yeah, well, the bears came along and they started destroying a lot of the ant colonies and eating a lot of the ants. And the researchers watched this over the course of four years. And they found that over this time, bears damaged or destroyed anywhere from about 26 to 86% of the ant nests that the researchers were observing. Now, you might expect this to have a pretty negative effect on the plants because it seems like the ants and the plants and the tree hoppers are sort of in this synchronicity. But actually, the opposite happened. So the balance is now thrown off, and the plants, for some reason, seem to be doing better. Why do they think that's the case? Well, the researchers think what typically happens is that the ants scare away predators that would feast on the tree hoppers. The tree hoppers are already doing a little bit of damage to the plants. So what happens is when those ants disappear, the predators swarm in, they kill all the tree hoppers that were damaging the plants, and therefore the, the plants thrive a lot more than they did before. So they're drawing kind of a sketchy line between bears and plant life via all these different insect interactions. That's right. Does that mean that when people think about conserving bears or conserving habitat, that they need to think about these kinds of cross-species interactions in a different way? Well, conservationists have been saying that for a long time, that you can't just think about a single species when you're thinking about trying to repair an ecosystem because there's these just really complex webs of interaction that are happening. And this is yet another example of that. Our next story could appear on a cooking show for planetary scientists. So far, only a few exoplanets look anything like Earth. But how closely do these Earth-like planets match our home? Dave, what can we tell so far about these, these worlds that may or may not be very Earth-like? Well, we can actually tell a surprising amount about these exoplanets, these planets that orbit stars outside of our solar system. When researchers look at these planets, and NASA's Kepler satellite has been one of the main instruments uh, that we've used, they look for dips in brightness as these planets transit in front of their parent stars. That tells them the diameter of the planet. But obviously, you want to know more about more than just the diameter. You actually want to know the mass, and that gives you some clues to the composition of these worlds. We've got the diameter. How do scientists go about figuring out mass in this case? Well, that requires an entirely different technique. What researchers have to do in this case is they actually look at the wobble that happens when an exoplanet orbits its star. The gravity of a planet can actually influence the motion of the star and actually make the star wobble back and forth very slightly. And astronomers can measure this wobble by measuring the frequency of a star's light very accurately. And this is done with an instrument called a spectrograph. And so that's what the researchers did in this new study. They looked at 10 known exoplanets that had diameters that are less than 2.7 times that of Earth. And they took some spectrographic measurements of what was going on with these planets to get a sense of their mass. These new measurements reveal the relationship between diameter, mass, and most likely the composition of these planets. Which ones were more likely to be Earth-like? What were they made of? Well, the ones that were less than 1.6 times Earth's diameter tended to resemble Earth a lot more. They had a density similar to our planet, which suggests that these were probably or likely rocky planets with an iron core, same as Earth, whereas the ones that were larger than 1.6 times the diameter of Earth tended to be a little fluffier, as the astronomers say. And that basically means that they're much less dense and they're probably made of lighter material. 
I think of them as gassier. Yeah, well, some of the components are hydrogen or helium, so that's not a bad way to think about it. I did mention at the beginning that this was kind of like something you would see on a cooking show for planetary scientists. Um, and that's because there's actually a recipe included for an Earth-like world in the story. That's right, Sarah. So if you or any of our listeners want to figure out how to make an Earth-like world, there is a recipe on the site. Lastly, we have a story on some blue-bearded ladies. When I say ladies in this case, I actually mean lady lizards, eastern fence lizards to be exact. In this species, the males have intense blue patches on their bodies, and so do some of the females. Researchers have known for a while that blue patches in males give them some kind of advantage, right, Dave? That's right. The females tend to be more attracted to them. And what about the ladies with the blue patches? It does not work both ways, sort of like bearded human ladies, the males are just a little turned off by them. What happens to females that have a lot of blue patches on them? Well, they tend to be ignored by males, and they also tend to lay their eggs about two weeks later than females that don't have these blue patches, and their eggs tend to be a little bit lighter as well. So there's some physiological differences having to do with mating. This new study suggests that there are some advantages for the blue ladies. How did they figure that out? Well, the first question was, you know, if being blue is so disadvantageous, why do the females in these lizards continue to sport blue color? There must be some sort of advantage. And so what the researchers did, they did a bunch of tests, and what they figured out is it seems to be linked to testosterone levels. Females that had higher testosterone levels showed more of these blue patches. And this testosterone seemed to convey some advantages to the females. They could run faster. And being less harassed by males was actually sometimes a good thing because these female lizards can get so harassed by males that it actually interferes with their ability to do some of their normal activities in life. That may be a bit of an advantage to get the guys to back off a little bit. What's more, the offspring of these blue females had better survival rates than the offspring of non-blue females. So all this together suggests that there are some advantages. Even though these females are repelling a lot of the males in the population, there's a reason they keep the blue around or there's a reason they have the blue, and that may be because they get some other advantages from it. Is this highly specific case, something that can be generalized beyond the world of lizards? Researchers are continually curious about why are males and females so different? I mean, so much of our genes are identical. Why do these differences crop up in females and males? And what are the advantages and the disadvantages of some of these differences? And even though this study is about lizards, not human beings, it does give us some hints that some of the differences in males and females, and actually some of the similarities as well, can be advantageous. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about a computer that has solved poker, or at least one type of poker. Also a story about a new type of antibiotic that may help kill a lot of drug-resistant bacteria. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why some members of Congress are asking for an investigation into a U.S. monkey lab. Also a story about what the largest U.S. biomedical research agency is saying about declining NIH funding and some ways researchers can employ to stretch their grant dollars. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. 
Infection with a parasitic worm can cause suppression of the immune system, leaving the host open to dangerous bacterial or viral infections. In a report this week, Vanessa Ezenwa looks at this co-infection relationship at the population level in African buffalo and finds that deworming may not be as helpful as previously thought. I spoke to her about the structure of the study and its implications for human health. Parasitic worm infections are more common uh, than I think we typically expect. So it's thought that a third of the world's human population is infected with worms. And in animal populations, these infections are very common. In light of a growing number of studies in laboratory animals um, showing that parasitic worms can actually affect the outcomes of microbial infections like human tuberculosis. We were really interested in how worm treatment might affect bovine tuberculosis, a close relative of human TB in a buffalo in a wild setting. So we followed a group of treated and untreated buffalo, all of whom started out without TB in the beginning over four years to see how the treatment would affect three main things. First, an animal's risk of getting infected with TB. A second, how they survived once they had a TB infection. Um, and finally, we were interested in sort of the population level spread of TB. So overall, we found that treating animals for worms had no effect on their infection risk, but they did survive better once they got TB. And so ultimately, those two things together means that treatment actually might enhance the spread of TB at the population scale. Hmm. So going into this, there's this concept that treating a parasitic worm infection might actually help treat co-infections, like with microbes. Why was this thought to be an effective strategy? This idea really relates to how the immune system of mammals responds to different types of infections. We can think of the immune system as having two main arms, one that fights large things like parasitic worms um, and one that fights small things like microbes that live inside of the cells. And so these two arms of the immune system actually interfere with one another. And for that reason, if you take away worm infections, you might actually improve a host's ability to fight those microbial things. Why did you choose to look at African buffalo and their infection with TB and parasitic worms? Like in many human populations, wild buffalo get infected with parasitic worms early in their lives, and they also face the risk of getting microbial pathogens. And one of the microbial pathogens of concern in African buffalo, at least in southern Africa, is bovine tuberculosis. Our earlier work actually showed that there were interesting associations between having worms and having TB in buffalo. And when we looked into that pattern in more detail, we found that, as has been reported in lab mice and people, that worms actually can depress the immune system of buffalo. So what that meant was that we could potentially use a wild buffalo population to ask questions that would be really difficult to ask either in a lab setting in mice or in people about the long-term impact of using a worm treatment on a microbial pathogen like TB. 
Right. So when you looked at the population level here, you looked at many buffalo over many years, you found something quite different than what's been seen at the individual level. What were some of those differences and did it go against your expectations? Yes, we expected that if you treated buffalo for a longer term period, that they'd be less likely to get TB in the first place, and that would be coupled with improved survival. But we saw the latter, but not the former. Um, And so it's the combination of those two things that lead to that sort of counterintuitive population level effect. And so basically, by estimating what we call the basic reproductive number of the pathogen, TB, we were able to show that because there's no change in how likely the animals are to become infected, yet they survive longer once they are infected, that that adds up to more buffalo available to spread TB. So deworming actually increased the amount of TB infections you saw in the population? Yes. So what we found at the individual level first was that individuals are no more or less likely to become infected with TB if you treat them for worms. So that doesn't change. However, we did find that if the animals get infected with TB, they can survive much longer with the infection. And so coupled together, when we estimated the effect of these two things on the potential of TB to spread at the population level, what you see is that that number goes up for TB. So what that means is that TB is more likely to spread at the population level. What does this mean for those trying to combat, you know, microbial infections by first tackling parasitic worm infections? Is that something that they should take another look at in other settings? I think what our results really mean is that this type of intervention might be more complicated than we originally expected. And so I think what this calls for is more careful evaluation of the consequences of different types of treatments. Right. You know, say this was people, we still want them to live longer, right? Of course. Yeah. But whether or not that's the best approach to tackling a secondary infection is kind of being called into question, right? Yeah. So I think that it's definitely an interesting strategy and it has a lot of potential. But I think that our study is sort of one of the first to try to go out and do this in a natural setting that's a bit more like what people experience compared to the laboratory setting where a lot of this type of work happens. So I think if we can evaluate different intervention strategies in more natural settings, that might lead to more creative ways to still use this type of worm intervention to treat microbes. Now, we talked about TB and parasitic worm co-infection here. Are there other pairings that have been looked at, you know, in people or in the lab where they're looking at a worm and another microbial infection? Yeah, so this type of work has been done now on a growing range of uh, different types of microbes. So things like HIV, um, malaria is another common one that's studied in this context, as well as things like influenza, um, leprosy even. Vanessa, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks, Sarah. It's been enjoyable to talk to you. Vanessa Nzenwa writes about treating infection and disease at the population level this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. 
The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and publisher AAAS, thanks for joining us.